was very grateful that, uh, that he could do that. And I know he was very grateful that he drew the assignment of uh, what it means to walk by the Spirit rather than the Spirit's intra-Trinitarian identity that we covered the, the two weeks before. And I know you guys are probably pretty glad for that too. Uh, two weeks ago was pretty deep stuff. Um, and there was a method to the madness, which I know a number of you told me on Sunday after the Sunday sermon, uh, that method became apparent because uh, Sunday's message in John 14 made a lot more sense to a lot of you, I know, because of what we covered here in the Forge. So if you were at the Forge wondering, what was that? Uh, just keep listening in the Gospel of John and you will see why what we covered was just really so very important. And so this morning, I do just want to make some very final wrap-up kind of comments about where we left off two weeks ago, and then we'll get back into uh, the material that we're going to be covering here today. Um, one of you <laughs> was very gracious to ask me after that Forge lesson two weeks ago, now, exactly what was it that you were hoping we would walk away with this morning? <laughs> and I said, okay, that, that's, a, that's actually a really insightful question. Um, and I, and I, I was grateful for it, but I thought, you know, that's a question that I ought to just explain to everybody. Um, and, and the reason um, why it's important for us to understand those things about the Trinity guys, I, I know, and, and Bruce made this clarification, which I was so grateful that he did, because I intended to say it up front, and I just forgot. Um, that the Trinity is something that the, the full extent of it is beyond our ability to truly and fully comprehend. And we don't, we don't deny that. We embrace that. We ought to embrace that. But I think sometimes in our Christian churches, we have a, we have a bad tendency to basically hear the word Trinity and just immediately say, can't understand it. It's beyond my comprehension. Well... See, God has revealed himself to us in a particular way, and there are many things about him that we can understand, and so we should try to. And so the Trinity is not a doctrine that is just so obscure that there is nothing intelligible about it whatsoever. And that really is what I'm trying to push you guys to embrace, to not just have an allergic reaction when you, whenever you hear the word Trinity. Um, oh, can't get it, don't know, just going to have to understand it by faith which is a true statement, but don't run there too fast. Because if you don't really seek to apply yourself, here are some of the results that can come from that. And this is why the conversation really matters. Let me just go through these with you quickly, okay? We end up having a really bad tendency to chop God up into thirds, resulting in a practical tritheism, right? Where we can tend to think in our worship, for instance... I am worshiping the Son today, apart from the Spirit and the Father, as though they were three different people. And that's really bad theology. See, a proper understanding of the Trinity says we don't have three gods. We have one God whose name is Father, Son, and Spirit. All right, So you can't completely separate and divorce the members of the Trinity from one another. They are three distinct persons, true, who are all one in essence and entirely equivalent to each other. That which is true of the Spirit is true of the Son, is true of the Father, and that which is true of the Father is also true of the Son, is true of the Spirit. Okay, that's the ground we covered. So we don't have three gods. And I think a lot of times that's the way we tend to think about the Godhead. All right? We can't do that. That's, that's bad theology. That's the first reason why it matters. 
Second reason is because we have a really bad tendency to think about the Trinity as operating in perhaps independent silos. We have the tendency to approach them and to think, well, sure, they, they all agree because they, they agreed ahead of time, but they all have different roles and different jobs and different levels of authority, right? Wrong. That's heresy, okay? Uh, they, they are not different in that way. They are of the same essence. And that's what you have to understand. Okay? Now, the third reason why that matters is because we've got a really bad tendency to introduce biblical grades of authority to the Trinity. And I think that's really important to understand when it comes time to exposit and, under, and, and, and dig into the text of John 14, 15, 16, and 17. Because when Jesus says, I will send you, or I am one with the Father, the Father is in me, and I am in him, and now you are in me, because I will send you another helper who will be in you, what he's saying is, you have a member of the Trinity resident within you who is equal to not only me, but also equal to my Father as well. It's not as though the Spirit is a lesser emanation or manifestation of God. No, he is the full manifestation of God, just as Christ is the full manifestation of God. And Father, Son, and Spirit are united in authority, power, glory, and honor. And that is the drivetrain of what we're studying in John 14 through 17. Okay? That's why it's so important for us to understand some of these truths about the Trinity as we get down into this next section of the Gospel of John. And there's some great tie-ins to pneumatology, which is why we took a step off the deep end and nearly drowned two weeks ago. All right? um, so I just wanted to explain a little bit and answer that question. What were you hoping we'd walk away with? I was hoping you'd walk away with an understanding of the glory, not only of the Trinity, but of the Holy Spirit specifically, so that we might appreciate who he is. Because this Sunday, we're going to turn the corner into the next section of John here and talk about what are the great benefits of having the Holy Spirit in our lives. And that's going to be great time Sunday. Can't wait to get there. And I should stop talking about it now or I'll preach that sermon instead of this lesson. All right, so let's not do that. Let's keep going, okay? All right, uh, that leads us now directly into our subject matter for today. See, I told you it was going to be a few brief words, and that was only just a few minutes. So we're, we're on track. This is good. All right. What is the difference between the baptism of the Spirit and the filling of the Spirit? What is the difference between those two theological truths? Is there a difference between those two theological truths? And does it matter? Uh, well, the answer is it absolutely does matter. And we're going to get down into what that difference is here this morning because it's really important, not just for your sanctification, but also for your discernment as it comes to identifying the errors that are running rampant through the evangelical 
different than the filling of the Spirit. And I'll get into why that's important here just a little bit. You know, and in my notes, they say two reasons why this conversation matters. And then there are actually three bullet points. So apparently I can't count. Uh, I don't know what your notes say, but there are three reasons why this conversation matters. All right. First reason is because many, many, many people, they run around searching for the baptism of the Spirit so that they can be empowered as the apostles were, for instance, in the early church for extraordinary or supernatural feats. Often, early in the book of Acts, you would find the apostles, for instance, in Acts chapter 2 and 3, and even being baptized into the Spirit, and then they immediately begin doing things like speaking in tongues or healing people or performing various miracles because they had been baptized into the Spirit. There are many people today who look at that and say, well, I need the baptism of the Spirit so that I can go and do likewise. And this is a huge emphasis, for instance, in the charismatic church of today. You have people who are searching for some kind of um, additional blessing or an additional kind of afterburner, if you will. I've been saved through faith in Jesus, but now I'm searching for the blessing of the Holy Spirit. I'm looking for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I know I've already got him living within me, but I'm looking to be truly baptized where now the afterburners kick in and I'm truly empowered, right? I'm truly empowered for the usage of miraculous spiritual gifts just like the early church was. All right, well, and we'll talk about that issue more um, a little bit later. But that, that's really why this matters. Is that what the baptism of the Spirit means? Is that what it is? See, we're going to get into that. That's reason number one why this matters. Reason number two, why many people are searching for the baptism of the Spirit, is because there is a misunderstanding that the baptism of the Spirit is really what leads you um, to a life that is now empowered to live for Jesus. This is called second blessing kind of theology. As though, you know, I can be saved, but I don't have yet the baptism of the Spirit, and if I could just somehow get the baptism of the Spirit, well, then I would really have the power that I need to live for Jesus. And it's the reason why you see so many different worship services that are programmed for people to be searching for the presence of the Spirit to come in now. Baptize us by the power of your Spirit so that we can truly worship you, really live for you. Um, for instance, that's a lot of what we saw happening in the recent so-called Asbury Revival, right? where you've got a bunch of people who claim to know Jesus and therefore already have the Spirit's indwelling power within them, now looking for kind of this special experience with the Spirit that is something new and unique and profound that is going to motivate them to now really go and live for Jesus. Because, you know, now we've got a different experience with the Spirit, a more advanced experience with the Spirit. We've been baptized into the Spirit to a degree that we never had been before. Um, and that's really the way that many people in our world today think. But that's not a biblical presentation of how the Holy Spirit operates in our life. We're 
going to talk about that here this morning. So that's the second reason why it matters. Third, many people assume that they are already, and this is kind of on the flip side of the equation. This is the one that I'm probably most concerned about for us as a church, because I, I don't think most of us struggle with charismatic-leaning theology, but I do think that uh, this is a point that many of us might think practically. Well, I'm already filled with the Spirit, right? As much as I can be. And therefore, because I've already got all of Him that I can get, that's what we believe, isn't it? Yes, that's what we've been saying. That's what Jesus says in John 14, 15, 16. That's what we believe. That I don't need to think about Him anymore. <laughs> because I've already got Him. And if I can't get more of Him, then what's the point of really pursuing a relationship to Him? Well, as we're going to find out, that is the nature of what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Okay? That the, the filling of the Spirit, which is distinct from baptism by the Spirit, is something variable that you can get more of or less of depending upon your attention to His illumination of the Word of God. Alright? You guys clear? Or did I just really confuse you? I know it is. Only 647. Alright? So let's dig into it. As you can see, this is really important. Really important for our own sanctification. Really important for identifying the error that we see happening all around us. Really important for our understanding of what pneumatology is. Okay, so let's dig in. Let's talk about it. What is the baptism of the Spirit? And I'll just tell you right up front, um, I'm taking a lot of this material from Costi Hinn's book um, because he did such a great job tracing this out in his chapter that there's really, <coughs> excuse me, no point in reinventing the wheel here this morning, all right? So I'm going to work us through a number of the things that he says because this was really a helpful chapter in his book. All right, so what does the Bible say about the baptism of the Spirit? Let's try to get down to a biblical definition of what the baptism of the Spirit actually is. What does the Bible say? Well, first, John the Baptist predicts the baptism of the Spirit. Actually, let's just read these texts. We've got time. Let's do it. Let's see it from the text itself. So I'm going to divvy these out. Matthew 3.11. Who can go there first? Okay, court. And then I'm just going to go through all these. Do you guys have these in your notes, these, these references? Good. Okay, Acts 1.3. Um, can somebody do that? Okay. Um, we won't read John 14, 15, and 16. That would be too much. So we'll skip over that. You can do that later. Or you can just come on Sunday. Acts 2. Um, 1 through 11. Who can read that? Right here, Kurt. Um, Acts eleven fifteen through 16. Okay, Tony. And then 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen. That one's going to be really important. All right, over here, Marv. Okay, so Matthew 3, 11. We're going to see John the Baptist predicting the baptism of the Spirit. Okay, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And he's clearly referencing Jesus there. When Jesus comes, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. All right, that's number one. John the Baptist predicts that it's going to happen. Well, then Jesus goes on to prepare the disciples for the baptism of the Spirit. And that actually should say Acts 1, 3 through 10. I'm realizing that that final zero got chopped off there. Yeah. Yeah, is, is that you, Tom? Yeah, go for it. To these he also presented himself a 
alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Okay, let's go ahead and just pause there for a second. And just pop quiz here. Where had the disciples heard from Jesus about the coming of the Holy Spirit specifically? Anybody know? This is not a trick question. Ah, the upper room. Thank you. Yes, John 14, what we've been talking about every single Sunday morning, right? See, Jesus had prepared his disciples saying to them, I am going to send you another helper, the spirit of truth, who will bring to mind everything that I have said to you and the new life that you're going to have with him resident inside of you. He has been with you, but now he will be in you. Is going to be a better kind of Christian life than anything you gentlemen have experienced with me over the past three years to date. Okay, Where he has prepared these men very clearly that the Holy Spirit is going to come. And Jesus calls that advent of the Holy Spirit coming the baptism of the Spirit. And he does that by pointing back to John the, Bapti John the Baptist. He says there in verse 5 of Acts 1, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then he adds this, it's new information, not many days from now. Okay, So clearly there Jesus defines the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It is the initial coming of the Spirit into the life of a disciple. All right, you see that there? Now let's keep going, because it's going to be even more clear. Uh, Pentecost, that is the experienced promise of baptism and filling. Let's go to Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Uh, Kurt, you got that? When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with other tongues, as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. When this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered, because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished saying, why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? Okay, let's go ahead and just pause there. We could keep reading, but there's just a lot of kind of extraneous information now at this point, okay? Go back to chapter 2, um, verse 3. Okay, divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. See, that is a description of the baptism of the Spirit. They now have the Holy Spirit upon them, uniting them as a single group. That's a description of the baptism. And it says they were also all filled with the Holy Spirit. And the filling of the Holy Spirit gives rise to what? Them speaking the truth in a miraculously empowered way. 
through tongues that they had never studied before. And as you, as you keep reading, you realize that these guys go out and they begin to preach, and they're speaking in languages that they don't know. But everybody who hears them understands exactly what they're saying, no matter what language they speak. You see, so the filling of the Spirit results not in the utterance of some gibberish heavenly language. What does the filling of the Spirit result in? The proclamation of that which is true. Okay, that's very important to understand. But that filling there, the filling with the Word of God and the proclamation of it, that naturally comes out of being filled with the Spirit, that I'll speak that which is true from the Spirit, that filling is distinct from the actual baptism that takes place here in the text. That's important to understand as well. Okay, let's keep going. Peter reports that the Spirit was now baptizing Gentiles without distinction. See, this is a very unique time in redemptive history. In the early church, not everybody who is a follower of Jesus gets the Spirit there on the day of, of Pentecost. Okay? There are other places in the book of Acts where people go and they, they talk to those who had, for instance, heard the gospel from John the Baptist and believed it, but had not yet received the Holy Spirit and needed to receive it. Okay, so the Holy Spirit begins to come upon people as the gospel and the truth of the fullness of Christ's message now and what he has accomplished is proclaimed. They then believe that and now they're indwelt with the Holy Spirit. Um, and, that, and that's what um, uh, we're told there in Acts chapter 11 verses 15 through 16, that the Holy Spirit is now also baptizing Gentiles without distinction from the Jews. Who's got Acts eleven fifteen to 16? Tony? Okay. What does that mean, that the Holy Spirit fell upon him? Does that mean that they began running around hysterically and rolling down the aisles? Is that what they meant? No, 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 no. It's the baptism of the Spirit, where now they are indwelt with the, with the Holy Spirit, just as Jesus promised they would be, indicating that now this baptism of the Spirit is not just something that is available to the original 12 disciples in the upper room, no, just as Jesus promised, this Spirit now indwells every single person who puts their faith in Christ. He comes upon them at that moment of faith. It's not just for the apostles. It's not even just for the Jews. It's also, Peter says, I can't believe it, for the Gentiles too. It's almost as though they're being grafted into the promises of the new covenant. That, that a universal blessing is now falling upon all mankind, just as God had promised Abraham that it would. Shocker, Peter says. Look at that. Okay, that's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. All right, lastly here, Paul explains now, and this is where it really comes into focus for us, that we have all been baptized by one Spirit. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. Okay, have you received the baptism of the Spirit, or is that something you're still looking for? Do you need to go to a special service where hands are laid upon you and you can receive the baptism of the Spirit, or do you already have it? Well, who's got 1 Corinthians 12? We're going to find the answer. Marv, give it to us. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. Okay, past tense. It's already happened. If you've believed, you have received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. 
It is that moment whereby he invades your life and takes up residence within you, enabling, as we're going to see on Sunday, both the Father and the Son to come and make their dwelling place amongst you. Whoa, that's powerful. That's the benefit of having the Holy Spirit, is that now the fullness of God, Father, Son, and Spirit are resident within you, making their home inside of you. That is the baptism of the Spirit. It's not some mystical occurrence where now I get some extra special empowerment for living that comes at some point down the road from my initial conversion. No, to be saved, to be regenerated by the Spirit, is to be indwelt by the Spirit, is to be baptized by the Spirit, immersed into union with Christ and union with His body. Okay, that's what Paul is saying there. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, Costi says it this way. It's very helpful. John the Baptist's and Jesus' words are all about expectation. The day of Pentecost and the early days of Acts are the experience of that expectation. And finally, Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 12, 13 should be seen as the explanation This is what the baptism of the Spirit is. It's when the Spirit comes upon us at the moment we are saved. So some people might propose that there can be believers who are baptized in the Holy Spirit and believers who are not baptized in the Holy Spirit but still need to be. That, he says, creates a division where the Bible does not. There is no point at which the New Testament believer is saved but not baptized by the Holy Spirit. You simply will not find that. So what should we believe about the baptism of the Spirit? Let me just read these out for you here. Okay, we'll go quickly now to make sure we stay on track. So keep up. The book of Acts presents a unique and foundational picture of the church's birth. Do you guys remember when we studied hermeneutics? I know it was two years ago and it was before 7 a.m. when we studied it, but you need to remember this. Hermeneutics 101 says, do not take a descriptive text and make it prescriptive now for all time ever afterwards. Okay, just because the Bible records something as having happened does not mean that there is an expectation for you to now go and do the same. Just because the apostles were able to raise the dead That is a description of miraculous power that was given by God to them for the purpose of validating their authority. That does not mean that you now have a prescription just because we have a description. You do not have a prescription to go out and do likewise. If you do, you will be sorely disappointed because it ain't going to happen, right? See, that's the difference between description and prescription. And what we find happening in the book of Acts, in that early church specifically, is largely descriptive. It is not prescriptive. There is a unique manifestation of the Spirit's presence and power for the specific purpose of establishing the church and validating its message. But now we have the full validation and the full message having been duly given and proven to us by God. We have everything that we need for life and godliness, and therefore the same kind of outpouring of the miraculous sort of works by the Spirit is no longer necessary to validate the truthfulness of His Word. Why? Because we have His Word, and its power is evident already. 
How is that power evident? Look at your life. Do you or do you not have the power of God to obey? Do you or do you not have the full mind of God contained within this book? Right? You have what you need for life and godliness. And that's what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1. Okay, so, unique and foundational picture of the church's birth. Now I am getting bogged down. Let's keep going. All right. No one was ever commanded to seek the baptism of the Holy Spirit or to pray for it. Why? Because if you've got the kind of spiritual awareness to know that you need the Holy Spirit, you already have the Holy Spirit. Okay? You don't need more of Him. That's what Jesus says in John chapter 14. Number three, the baptism of the Holy Spirit was accompanied by tongues and extraordinary events primarily as a sign that God was doing something new. We've already covered that. And we will cover that at length uh, a couple weeks from now. All right. Number four, after the foundational moments in Acts, Paul references the baptism of the Holy Spirit only as being associated with believers who are being added to the body of Christ. So you keep reading in the epistles, and when Paul references in the epistles this idea of baptism of the Spirit, it is never used in reference to miraculous sort of events. It is exclusively used in reference to new believers coming to Christ and receiving the Holy Spirit, being baptized, 1 Corinthians 12 for instance, into one and the same body. Okay? The baptism of the Holy Spirit did not always result in the speaking of tongues, you can see that in Acts chapter 8, verse 14. Many people today try to equate, well, the reason you can't speak in tongues is because you don't have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Because if you had the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you could speak in tongues. Well, that wasn't even true back in the days of the early church. So you can't say that today. All right. Number six, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a free God-given experience that is always linked to conversion or being added to the body of Christ according to God's sovereign power, not man's. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is distinct, as we saw in Acts chapter 2, from the filling of the Holy Spirit. So, having looked at what the scriptures have to say about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, what's our definition for it? Here it is. You ready? The baptism of the Spirit, and this is one that I came up with, is that moment at which you are indwelt by the Spirit of God and are immersed into single union with the person of Christ and his body. Let's look to validate that over to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 5 through 7. I may have written that definition, but I did not come up with it. All right? Uh, this is straight from Scripture. Acts chapter 4, verse 4. Let me read it. There is one body, that's us, and one spirit, that's the one in us. That's baptism. Because you've been baptized into the Spirit, you're now part of the same body. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, so now you've got one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Okay? The baptism of the Spirit, therefore, according to Ephesians chapter 4, is that point at which you are immersed into Christ and into his body, which is the whole point of Jesus's monologue in John 14, 15, and 16, where he says, I'm going to send you the helper. And the result is that now you can abide in me, he says. Just as 
The branches are connected to the vine, so you now are to abide in me. How is that possible? It's possible only as you've been baptized or immersed, made one with Christ. And if you've been made one with Christ and you have his spirit within you, and my neighbor, Tom over here, has been baptized into the spirit and has the spirit within him, well, guess what? That also means that now I am one with my brother, which is why disunity in the church is so grievous to God and to the Holy Spirit, because we are literally one just as he is one. And, and that's what Jesus is going to say in John chapter 17 when we get there. Father God, he says, just as I am in you and you are in me and my spirit is in them, just as we all mutually indwell one another, so too may they now be one with each other, just as I am one with you. How can he say that? Because he indwells now all of us. We've been baptized into the Spirit. So how could having the same Spirit, one Spirit, one faith, one Lord, one baptism, we be at odds with one another? This makes no sense, right? It makes no sense to Jesus. And his final prayer request for his followers is that we would all be one together, just as he is one. That's the implication of what it means to be baptized into the Spirit. You're now immersed into Christ, and you're one with him. You're also immersed into his body. And so you're one with one another as well. Okay? That's the implication of baptism by the Spirit. Not some wackadoo sort of sign gift that I hope I can get or be empowered for. That's not what we're after. What we're after is oneness with each other. Okay? Questions on the baptism of the Spirit. Have I made this as clear as mud for you this morning? Excellent. All right, good. Okay? All right, let's keep going. So, oh, well, actually, I skipped a whole section of your notes with a lot of blanks. And I know those of you who like blanks are, are not going to let me do that. So let me cover these quickly. Characteristics of spirit baptism. This is very important because we'll contrast this in just a minute with characteristics of spirit filling. Baptism, therefore, occurs once in every believer's life. It does not depend upon you. It's the unilateral act of God in response to faith. It is true universally of all believers. It cannot be undone. See, the whole, the whole point of the new covenant was that God's spirit would now reside within you. And it results in you now having a position before God of having been declared righteous. That's what it is to be regenerated, right? You have been made new. You've been made alive, you have the position of being alive to God because you've been baptized into His Spirit. His Spirit has made you alive. That's regeneration. Okay? That's what it means to be baptized. Occurs once, does not depend on you. It's true of all believers. It cannot be undone, and it results in a specific kind of a position. Make sense? Those are some of the distinguishing markers or characteristics of what it means to be baptized into the Spirit. That is very different from being filled with the Spirit. Now let's talk about that here for just a few moments. And this is where I'm, I, I, I got some help last week from Pastor Alex, because I know he already covered this here just a little bit. So let's go over to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. Ephesians 5, verse 18. And in this verse, you find a very interesting parallel. 
It says, do not get drunk with wine. Because that's debauchery. But instead, instead, direct parallel, be filled with the Spirit. What are the characteristics of what happens when you get drunk? You're no longer under your own control. There is something that is controlling you. And Paul says, alcohol should not be controlling you. Something else should be controlling you. As believers, what should be controlling you? The Spirit of God, right? What else? What else is true? What happens when you are controlled by alcohol, when you're drunk with wine? Any other thoughts? You don't know what you're doing. doing, Okay, we can call that change. There's a change that comes upon you. The entity that you have consumed changes your behavior. All right? The same thing is true when you are filled with the Spirit instead of filled with wine. What happens to you when you are filled with the Spirit? Are you yourself? No. There is a change that takes place in you. That also is true. What's another feature of this contrast between being filled with alcohol and being filled with the Spirit? It's a very interesting parallel that he makes here. We talked about control. You're under something else's control. We've talked about change. There's a change that's produced in your behavior. But there's one very important key we haven't touched on yet. There is also, and Alex mentioned this last week, a choice that, that has been made. You don't just get drunk with wine on accident. You, you choose, it's literally called imbibing for a reason, right? You choose to drink what you've drunk that is now controlling you and changing your behavior. That is the direct result of a choice that you make. So too, it is with the filling of the Spirit. You can choose to be filled by Him, or you can choose to not be filled by Him. And there we get down to the definition of what it is to be filled by the Spirit. Being filled by the Spirit is a choice that I make to yield control for everything about me to the direction of the Spirit so that I would change. All right, let's skip down to that section there in your notes that talks about the definition. And this is one that came from John MacArthur. Okay, being filled with the Spirit is walking thought by thought, decision by decision, act by act, under the Spirit's control. The Spirit-filled life yields to every step of the Spirit of God. That's what it is to be filled by the Spirit. It is a daily, constant, intentional choice for me to yield myself and my desires to Him and to His desires. Specifically, to what has been revealed through His Word. That's very important. So let's just unpack that here for a few moments. The proof that you are actively filled by the Spirit, is that you will now manifest what is called the fruit of the Spirit. 
Namely, your behavior, your attitudes, your thoughts, and your will are going to reflect those of Jesus Christ. And as we've been learning again in the Gospel of John, okay, I, I, I'm sorry I keep going back there, but there's just powerful parallels between what we've been studying there and what we're studying here. This is because the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. They're one. They, being distinct persons, have the same essence. And so you can't separate out the identity of the Holy Spirit from the identity of Jesus as though they were two completely differentiated beings. No, to have the fruit of the Spirit is to manifest the character of Christ because they're of the same essence. Okay, Christ is the Spirit. Christ is in the Spirit and the Spirit is in Christ. The Spirit is in you and you are in the Spirit. Thus, if you are yielding yourself continually to the direction of the Spirit in your life, you will look like Christ. You will be in Christ. You will be in the Father. And that's what Jesus meant in John 14, 20, when he says, the Father and I will come and make our dwelling place in you. We'll talk about that more on Sunday. Okay? And it's that impact of being Spirit-filled now that causes Jesus to eagerly say to his disciples in John 14, look, this other helper is going to be in you. And it's going to be to great effect because his full presence in your life, it's not up to you, right? You have him, you've been baptized into him. But whether or not you take advantage of that presence is up to you. You can choose to walk by the Spirit, as Alex taught us last week, or you can choose to walk by the flesh. And if you choose not to walk by the Spirit, well, then you will not be filled by the Spirit and your life will not manifest the fruit of the Spirit. Even though you being baptized into Him, having fully received His presence, can choose not to walk in a way that is filled up by Him. The wholeness of Him is there, but if you choose to ignore Him and walk by the power of your flesh, you will not be filled up by that wholeness. Do you see the distinction? You see the difference? Guys, that's so important. And this is what I meant when I said this is my concern for us at the very beginning. See, I think very often we think, well, I've got the whole Spirit of God, all the power of God that I need for Christian living. Therefore, I can just go on my merry way and I don't need to swim against the tide. For the Spirit of God, He's in me and He'll do it for me. And if, if, and if somehow I, I were to slip, well, then that'll be okay because God is in me. There's no effort necessary on my behalf. Is that the biblical teaching? No. No, you've been baptized by the Spirit. You have the wholeness of Him. But the biblical teaching is that I would now pursue yielding myself to Him, walking with Him, pursuing Him, seeking to live in a way that is pleasing to Him. Why? Because I am now a temple of God, His Spirit living within me, and I need to see, see that I am fit for habitation by God. And the only way that I can do that is as I yield myself to the mind of the Spirit, which is the mind of God, walking by His power so that I do not give in to my flesh and that I be filled with the Spirit. Now let's talk about how to get filled with the Spirit. Um, and that's going to get down into application here. So actually, 
Before we get down into the application, let me just contrast filling so you guys have clarity in your minds on the difference between filling and baptism. Filling is a repeated experience. Baptism, how many times does baptism happen? Once. How many times does filling happen? It ought to be happening every single hour, every single minute of every single hour of every single day. Right? This is something that is constantly that we are in pursuit of. Does baptism of the Spirit depend upon you or the Spirit? Baptism. On the Spirit of God. Okay? He comes into you. John chapter 3. Jesus says the Spirit goes and enlivens whomever He wishes. Right? He baptizes whomever He desires. So this, the, the Spirit is in control of baptizing. But when it comes to filling, who does that depend upon? You. Your willingness to be yielded to Him. Now, the only way that you can have that desire is if the Spirit of God is in you. So there is a sense in which I guess you could say the Spirit of God is very much active in driving you towards filling, but ultimately you are the one who takes that action of choosing to yield myself to His power by His power. Does that make sense? Okay, keep going. This is something that is not necessarily experienced by all believers. Baptism by way of contrast, happens to everyone who places their faith in Christ. But not everybody who places their faith in Christ is going to go on to submit themselves to the Spirit of Christ. They will continue to walk in their own way. And this is where the New Testament is very clear. If your life is characterized by having placed your faith in Christ, but you see no evidence of the fruit of the Spirit in your life, you probably should be asking whether or not you truly believed in Him at all to begin with. Okay? This can be lost. If I choose today to just go out and walk by my flesh, I will not be filled with the Spirit. Or it can be gained. If I wake up this morning and stand before the Lord and say, I desperately need your help to get through my day. And what does your word have to say to me that will empower me for the living of a life that would be pleasing to you? I can now walk by the power of the Spirit in a way that would not have otherwise been possible. So there's a variableness to filling that is not true of baptism. Does that make sense? Okay. And whereas baptism results in a position of good standing before God, filling results in power for living before God. One gives you a position, the other one actually gives you power now for this life. And that's what Jesus is talking about in John 14 again, when he says the Spirit will be in you. And guys, let me tell you, it's going to be great because Peter, you can't do it on your own. You need me in you, empowering you. That's the nature of filling. And it wasn't just true for Peter. It's true for all of us. So those are the differences between filling and baptism. Okay? Yes, sir. So the Spirit doesn't have until they become a believer? Is that Good question. The Spirit does not have any specific impact on a person until they become a believer. The Scriptures are very clear that the only way by which you can become a believer is if the Spirit of God illuminates your eyes to your need of salvation. 
And then once he has illuminated you to the reality of who you are, you can't identify that need on your own. The human heart is programmed to believe I'm pretty good and I'm my own boss. That's what the fall has done to us. The only way to come to a place where you're willing to recognize I am not pretty good and I can't be my own boss is if the Spirit of God opens your eyes to the reality of that. Once he opens your eyes to the reality of that, then he comes in blowing as a wind, John, John chapter 3, and he radically transforms you. Now that he has done that work to regenerate you, that's the point at which you now are enabled to place your faith in Jesus Christ because you see, can't depend upon me, I must depend upon him. That willingness to be dependent upon him, that is a work of the Spirit of God within you. And now that you place your faith in him and depend upon him, now the Spirit fully indwells you. And if you will yield yourself to him continually, fill you as well. Okay, does that make sense? Okay, yeah, Chris. As it relates to the Old Testament, yeah. So I, th this is an area of pretty wide theological debate. Okay, I believe that the scriptures teach that the indwelling of the Spirit is a New Testament reality. That's the whole point of the New Covenant. Jeremiah 36, or I'm sorry, Ezekiel 36, Jeremiah 31. I will send my Spirit to be in you, and He will write my law on your heart. Instead of a tablet of stone that now is outside of you that you're trying to keep, no, now my law will reside within you. That's, that's the New Covenant promise implying that that wasn't the case in the Old Testament. And Jesus, that's the whole point of the glory of what he's saying in the Gospel of John in the upper room, is, guys, the time has come. The Spirit is coming. He's here. I'm going to give him to you, and it's going to be great. This is why I got to go. I got to go so he can come. And when he comes, it's going to be different and better. That's what he's saying. Okay. So the implication of that, then, is that New Testament faith under the new covenant, immediately results in the Spirit of God. That's what Jesus says. He has been with you, but now he will be in you. That is different than the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there was not that indwelling. Now, could you be saved without the Spirit's regeneration? Could you be saved without the Spirit's illumination in the Old Testament? No. Salvation has always been the result of a work of God. But it's a work whereby the Spirit comes upon you and you then come into the presence of the Spirit of God by going where? To the temple where who dwells? The Spirit of God. See, the way by which you accessed the power of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament was as you went to the temple to find Him and come to Him. And bring your sacrifice and repent and place your faith in the, the coming work of Christ that would be mediated by the Spirit's power and presence. But in the New Testament, do you go to a temple? No, because where is the temple now? Boom. In me. Why? Because the Spirit's in me. So the Spirit's always been critical to regeneration and to salvation. But the way by which that Spirit is accessed is radically distinct and far superior today than it was before. Is that clear? Okay. Yeah. 
How did it work with Abraham? Yeah, so... I would say that with Abraham, the Spirit of God came to Abraham in the making of the covenant. Which is why when you see the cutting of the covenant taking place, and I think, is that Genesis 17? 15? Is that where the covenant's cut? Yeah, that's 15? Okay. 15, excuse me, you see a manifestation of God cutting the animals in half, drenching the covenant in actual blood, and then what does he do? He walks through it. I would say that is a manifestation of the Spirit of God. Because God the Father is invisible. And Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, no one has ever seen nor can they see the Father. So what did Abraham see there in Genesis 15? I would argue that that's a manifestation of the Spirit. And it was the Spirit of God that not only made God's covenant with Abraham, but was there manifesting himself to Abraham. And it's in that manifestation that Abraham now puts his faith and believes. Okay? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yes. And if you want to know more about that, I would say go back and listen to Alex's first message from five weeks ago now, I think, because he got into that just a little bit, that in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come upon individuals for certain kinds of work, which is very different than the Holy Spirit indwelling us every minute of every day, which is now the superiority of that which is ours in Christ. Okay, let's, let's just jump here to application because I have two minutes left for three application points. Let's do it quick, okay? Number one, you do not need to search for more of the Holy Spirit. Instead, you need to seek to yield more of yourself to the Holy Spirit. Pastor Jerry said this the very best way possible on Sunday. We don't need more of the Spirit. The Spirit needs more of us. That's the application. Got it? Okay. Number two, the way to be filled by the Spirit, and I really wish I had spent more time on this this morning, maybe we'll circle back around to it, is to constantly fill your mind with the Word of God. This is how the Spirit speaks to you. We're going to spend a whole week on this down the road. But if you compare Ephesians 5.18 with Colossians 3.16, the command to be filled with the Spirit is paralleled in Colossians 3.16, but there he says, be filled, fill yourself with the Word of God. So if you want to hear the voice of the Spirit empowering you for your daily life, what do you need to fill your mind with? If you want your life to be filled with the Spirit, what's your mind got to be filled with? The Word of God, right? That's the agency that the Spirit uses to change you. It's why He's called the Spirit of Truth in John 14, 17, and why Jesus says, the Helper's going to bring to mind all things that I have said, John 14, 26. Okay, the Word of God is the agency that the Spirit of God uses. Let me ask you a trick question. If you do not expose yourself consistently to the Word of God, can you be filled by the Spirit of God? Yes and no. Not really. Because you, you can't be filled by the, the true power of the Spirit if you've cut yourself off and divorced from the thing the Spirit uses to grant you the power for living. That's why the Word of God is so central to our lives. We'll talk about it more later. I know you've got questions. We'll cover them down the road. All right? Number three, last one. Do not, please do not pursue some mystical, additional, weird spirit baptism 
for the exercise of supernatural gifts. You already have the person of God within you, illuminating truth for you. John 14, 23. That's all the power you need for life and godliness. You've already got it, so yield yourself to it. Be filled by Him. Okay? Guys, that was a lot of ground to cover in two minutes. I'm proud of you. Good job. We did Trinity. We did baptism. We did filling. We did some stuff this morning. I hope you feel good about it. I do. Okay? We'll see you. Oh, really quick. We will not see you next week. I almost forgot. We will not see you next week. The reason for that is because next Friday night into Saturday morning is our annual men's conference here at the church. I would very strongly encourage you, if you have not yet signed up for that, do it. We've got a guy named Kempis Hernandez coming in. He's a great guy, dynamic speaker. He will not disappoint you talking about what it means and what it looks like to be all in for Christ. All right, You can sign up for that on the, uh, the church website. Sunday is the last day for that. That's the cutoff. So you've literally got 48 hours to squeak in under the wire. If you haven't done it, do it. But to make room for that on Friday night, we're going to cut you loose on Friday morning. So I will see you back here in two weeks. When will I see you back here? Two weeks. Two weeks. Okay. Oh, I, yeah, I, I.